Geopolitics on the Move. I'm Sean Guillory, the host of the SRB podcast. I'm Fyodor Lukyanov, the editor of Russia and Global Affairs. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russia and Global Affairs, the graduate initiative in Russian studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The initial shocks of the coronavirus pandemic are waning, and global life is slowly getting back on track. Though change in response to COVID is inevitable, there's a growing sense that everything will continue as before, but only worse. The list of geopolitical challenges is intensifying. Nationalism, the clash of identities, the fragmentation of the world economy, and the erosion of the liberal economic model. As do the responses. Demands for greater sovereignty, dismantling arms control regimes, and escalating competition among major powers, especially between the United States and China. COVID-19 didn't create any of these. It only reinforced them. Perhaps the pandemic's most profound impact will be on the relations between people, society, and the state. COVID hit Russia at a domestic crossroad. As the virus began to ravage the world, Russia started to reform its constitution and modify its state system. Like elsewhere, the pandemic didn't torpedo this agenda. It simply complicated the path forward. Even without the unexpected upheavals, it was clear that Russian politics was entering into a new stage. Now the search for a new balance of geopolitical forces will occur in completely different conditions. What does Russia think? How much do Russian perspectives on international issues in this new moment differ from those of the United States? Are convergent, if not common, perceptions of the future possible, or will the divergences widen? In the following discussions, Geopolitics and the Move will address these issues with some of the best Russian, European, and American thinkers tackling these contemporary challenges. The United Nations emerged from the ashes of the worst war in human history to preserve global peace. 75 years later, though the UN remains a leading global institution, there is increasing talk of it being in crisis and the necessity of reform. Can the UN return to relevancy amid the geopolitical realities of the 21st century? Here's Yale University professor Thomas Graham and Russia's first deputy permanent representative to the UN, Dmitry Polanski, with their insights. So just to start our, our conversation, I'd like both of you to uh, introduce yourself. So Tom, why don't you start? Yeah, certainly. My name is Tom Graham. I'm a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a senior advisor to Kissinger Associates, a research scholar at Yale University, and I worked for 20 years at the U.S. government on, on Russian, Russian affairs, including five on the National Security Council staff as a senior expert on Russia during the George W. Bush administration. Well, my name is Dmitry Polanski. I am currently first deputy permanent representative of Russia to the United Nations. I am in this position for two years, more or less. Uh, I don't have much of scientific experience, though I participated in a lot of roundtables. Uh, previously, uh, my, my previous posting was a uh, Russian representative to Taiwan. We had this inform, informal uh, trade and uh, economic representation. I was heading it for two years. And then uh, most of my career, I was dealing with European Union, uh, with these sort of uh, issues, and also with uh, Eurasian economic integration in, in former, former Soviet republics. Yeah, Fyodor Lukyanov, editor of Russian Global Affairs. Well, you know, in both of you have, a, have extensive experience, you know, working at, in the diplomatic realm, uh, which is a side that I don't get a lot of insight to uh, on in this forum. So just to kind of broaden, set some things for our larger conversation, I'd like both of you to give your your sense of the current situation, uh, the current state of U.S.-Russia uh, relations. So, uh, Tom, why don't you start? 
Yes, certainly. Uh, Sean, I, I actually joined the U.S. government in 1983, uh, and that was a very bad year for uh, U.S.-Russian relations. Right? Remember, uh, President Reagan called Russia the evil empire at that point. Uh, he announced the Strategic Defense Initiative, or Star Wars, uh, which was going to threaten to undermine the whole system of nuclear deterrence. The Soviets shot down a commercial airliner over the Russian Far East in, in the fall. They broke off all negotiations of arms control agreements. And there was a great fear in, in Moscow at that point that uh, the United States and NATO might be preparing a nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union. Uh, I would say that relations today are probably as bad as they were in 1983. Uh, and they haven't been worse in any time between those two, two dates. Uh, we've broken off diplomatic relations. Uh, it's clear that we have a, a wide-ranging set of differences over world, world order, various geopolitical or regional conflicts. Uh, we have a different set of values that inform our political systems. Uh, but I think what is really problematic at this point uh, is that we've broken off diplomatic relations. Um, so we've lost the ability to communicate to one another. Uh, and in that vacuum of communication, of genuine communication between our two governments, what you've seen in both societies uh, is the demonization of the other side, not only of the political leaders. You know, certainly we have demonized President Putin here in the United States for some time, but it's extending now to demonization of the countries as a whole, something that we didn't even have during the Cold War period. So it's a problematic relationship. Uh, it's dangerous. Uh, we haven't been this close to uh, a, a growing risk of a military conflict that could escalate to the nuclear level uh, in many, many years. Uh, and it, there's a real need to find a way to put this relationship on a more constructive path. Uh, actually, I can subscribe to almost everything that Tom said on this issue. Uh, I don't see uh, anything different uh, in my analysis, though I, I would give uh, our perspective a little bit. It's a very strange situation because every every year we we expect that we have reached the bottom, I would say, but we haven't reached the bottom. And each and every every year shows us uh, that, that that's not yet the bottom. I also remember quite clearly the, the 90s. I remember the situation there when Soviet Union collapsed and, there, and when there were a lot of big hopes that the United States is our friend, that the relations will be different, that we will be uh, able to, to, to build uh, a new type of relationship. Uh, but this, uh, these hopes uh, waned uh, quite quickly. And uh, what we have now, if we compare it with the times of the Cold War, uh, during the Cold War there was, uh, there was a reason for all this. It was ideology. I understand, uh, looking back now, that Soviet Union was a very specific state. It, ha it had a very aggressive ideology and uh, we wanted to undermine uh, all the systems in the world and to, to make them become communist or socialist or whatever. So it was quite clear why, uh, why uh, Western nations uh, were expecting some bad things from us. There was ideological basis for this. Now, if you compare Russia and if you compare United States, uh, it's not, there is not such a big difference in terms of how societies are, are constructed. So we are both uh, capitalist states. We don't have aggressive ideology. Uh, we have, of course, our own principles. We, we are a bit different, but if you compare, United Kingdom is very different from United States in terms of how the societies are built, but it doesn't mean that they are in confrontation. We also have certain values. Uh, we are mostly Christian country, but also a Muslim country, but it doesn't contradict uh, deeply uh, what United States is promoting. What we oppose uh, very much uh, is uh, American exceptionalism in the world. That's the thing that uh, we really don't understand. And there is also another dimension to, to add to what, uh, to what Tom has said. Uh, we are now living in a very strange uh, virtual reality because it's kind of a post-truth world. Because what is happening it doesn't matter very much. Uh, it's important uh, how, how media, how social media or mainstream media present this thing. So there are a lot of <clears throat> accusations, a lot of claims about Russia that we uh, know for sure that they are not true. But it's very difficult to prove anything because it is assumed that this is truth. And 
there is no uh, uh, presumption of innocence. Uh, so nobody is saying that uh, somebody somebody needs to prove that Russia is wrong. Uh, this is kind of uh, basic understanding. Russia is wrong, full stop. And we need to, to prove that Russia is not wrong, which is uh, very, very difficult, if not impossible. That's why we live in this reality and we, we see more and more claims, more and more bizarre things like Russian meddling in the elections or recently this scandal with, with the Russian bounties for alleged bounties for Taliban. Nobody even bothers to prove anything. They just say, well, this is common knowledge or the Skripal case or everything else. And this is the virtual reality. It has nothing to do with truth. But it's something that is already very deep in the heads of, uh, of Americans, of, of uh, common Americans and American politicians. And it, it also forms a certain background, certain reasoning for their action. And it's very difficult to combat it. Uh, this is a new situation for us and for, for, for everybody. If I may jump in with, with a comment, <laughs> because... <laughs> Yeah, very brief. I, I, I don't see such a phenomenon as a U.S.-Russian relation just now. Uh, simply, this relationship doesn't exist in a traditional form. And we have, uh, uh, first of all, the U.S. policy totally and overwhelmingly consumed by domestic uh, agenda. And that's it. That basically eliminates any preconditions from uh, for uh, bilateral relationship. Hopefully, it will revive after election. Yeah, this is something I want to I want to get to later in terms of how each respective uh, domestic, domestic politics shapes things. But you know, going back to something that that Tom said, and I think this this also speaks to um, something that. That Dimitri said, and that is there's there's a different one of the the main issues is it seems uh, American officials and Russian officials have a different concept of what the world order should be and how it should be organized and the rules for that uh, rules of rules of engagement. Um, Dimitri, can you uh, start by by talking about what how does how do Russian officials understand the world the international world order? Yes, Sean. Uh, I think it's it's very it's very easy. Uh, we are in favor of a multilateral system, and uh, United Nations is kind of cornerstone of this multilateral system. That's why it's very easy for us to to work to work here and to promote uh, to promote our principles and uh, our perceptions. But the problem is uh, that United States uh, doesn't accept uh, this reality. Maybe uh, they can pay lip service to it, but uh, in reality, what they, what the United States is doing, is is totally contrary to to the principle of, of multipolar system and multipolar world. Uh, we now have even problem uh, with them and with some Western countries in defining. What do we want? What do we have? Uh, international law system ba- based on of, on international law, or uh, system based on rules based international order? It seems to be very close, but uh, there is big difference in these two perceptions, uh, because rules based order means that somebody formulates these rules, and uh, there are a lot of actions that the United States uh, take, uh, and they do not correspond to international law but they correspond to so-called rules-based order. And this is also a very, very big, uh, very big uh, difference uh, between us. So uh, there, are no, there are no certain understanding of uh, what does uh, United States want from, from this world. Uh, does, uh, does America want to, to remain world policeman uh, or not? But certainly... Uh, there is still perception of American exceptionalism. It means that American society assumes that everybody wants American engagement. Uh, America needs to have every every word uh, on uh, every issue. And uh, there are certain countries that don't want to follow uh, these rules-based order. Now they are like Russia, China, Iran, Syria, I don't know, you name certain, some of others, Cuba, Venezuela. These are kind of enemies of the free world. And uh, the task of the free world is uh, to concentrate and to prepare, prepare a certain response uh, to these uh, bad countries. Uh, this is very primitive, but th- this is how uh, the situation is perceived uh, here. It, you can clearly uh, see it in, in, in mainstream media. And of course, the, the problem is also that, uh, as further put it, 
correctly, uh, very very many things are dominated uh, by uh, by the upcoming elections and by the fact that uh, mainstream media and a lot of people they just uh, hate uh, Donald Trump and they want to do everything to prevent him from re-election. So these two things uh, combined, uh, they produce a very, very strange uh, phenomena and very strange uh, circumstances uh, f- for our work. Sometimes you, you have the feeling that uh, there is total anarchy uh, and uh, no control at all. So we try to do something at the United Nations. We still have Security Council, which is the uh, top authority for peace and security. Sometimes we succeed, sometimes we do not succeed. But it's quite clear that Americans have certain despise for these international multilateral institutions. Uh, you see it in World Health Organization, you see it in World Trade Organization, and sometimes in the United Nations. When they need United Nations, they say, yes, United Nations, it's, it's, it's a brilliant, it's, it's awesome. But when they don't need it, they say, well, United Nations, what is it? Russia and China have veto. World Health Organization is a tool in Chinese, Chinese hands. This can be very dangerous uh, because this really resets all the rules and uh, gives nothing, uh, nothing uh, uh, to to replace them. So that's how I view it. Well, you know, I think there's a certain element of truth to what Demetrius said. The United States has certainly seen itself as a as an exceptional or as a special power in, the, in global affairs. Uh, we've seen ourselves since the end of the Second World War as the architect builder in many ways, the garden of what we call the liberal world order, a world order based on a set of liberal principles, which are themselves grounded in the sense of individual autonomy, individual freedom, uh, and so forth. And it's an order that we see uh, is built around free markets, democratic communities, collective security, uh, and some sense of shared sovereignty. Now, I would disagree with uh, Dimitri. The United States really has been... uh, for the past 70 years or longer, a country that believes in multilateralism. Multilateralism is somewhat different from multipolarity, however. Um, we don't recognize as, as, a, as a fundamental organizing principle of world, uh, of world affairs, of world orders, uh, different centers of power uh, that uh, compete. What we see is uh, countries working together in a multilateral environment uh, to try to solve global problems. Now, the United States also saw itself as the leader of this liberal world order. Uh, the free world is what we called it during the, during the Cold War. Uh, we tried to ex- extend it universally after the end of the Cold War. And that is clearly where we've had problems because there have been differences over the interpretations of some of the fundamental principles, liberal principles that undergirded the United Nations when it was founded uh, in 1945. I think that's where we, where we have the, uh, the dispute today is over how you interpret these things, how these institutions are supposed to function, uh, and what, uh, what is the appropriate uh, understanding of legitimacy in, in today's world. Uh, you know, the two things that are necessary if you're going to have a stable world order. Uh, one is legitimacy, a common sense of what is appropriate, inappropriate in international affairs relations among states. Uh, and the second is a balance of power. Uh, those things were reflected in many ways at the UN when it was founded in 1945. I think that's less so less so today. And we have significant differences over what legitimacy is in the international environment. And clearly the balance of power has shifted dramatically since 1945. You know, I'm, I'm getting uh, from both Tom and Dimitri's comments, one of the things I'm noticing is it, it this is an interpretation of mine, and that is, there seems to be a, a different a, a difference of time frame. So, Tom, your answer just like right now just seemed to take a longer view of American, um, you know, role in the world and how it understands the world order. And then from Dimitri's comments, and this is something that I also read in an interview you did with Fyodor, uh, that you know the description of of schizophrenia and and anarchy seems to me uh, also a very short term uh, view of American relations, particularly the role Russia has played domestically, which has you know really been intensified in the last four years. Um, could you, Dimitri, comment on uh, the the kind of more longer term 
uh, rush sense from Russia about the world order and the American place in it? Uh, well, it's. I think it makes sense to to take maybe thirty years, not not more, because uh, that's what that was a different country and uh, it's rather part of history already. But if you speak about modern Russia, well, uh, I started to, uh, to to speak about this that we had a very very bright expectations about the future, about how we would uh, view Russia's place in the world, that the world has changed, we are now together, these uh, scorpions singing wind of change in Moscow, everything was very symbolic. But this, uh, this uh, vanished quite quickly, when, uh, quite quickly when we started to, to, to say that we still have our national interests. It was also quite clear for us that uh, Americans and, and the Westerners, uh, they started to interfering quite uh, seriously in, in our internal affairs. They uh, really did a lot to, to promote uh, disintegration uh, of the Soviet Union at the beginning. And then there were a lot of attempts to promote disintegration of Russia, a lot of meddling. Uh, I think that it is now being... Uh, discovered all these things uh, through historic documents, uh, through proofs. Uh, I, I can't say that it was a decisive role, but it was visible. It was uh, clear that uh, the uh, the Western countries, they, they were not interested in a strong Russia. And actually, uh, it was also this, uh, uh, this fraud in our relationship uh, that, uh, that dates back to the Gorbachev era, because it, it's it's not it's not a secret right now that uh, Gorbachev was was eager to dismantle the Soviet Union uh, because he uh, he heard a, a lot of pleasant uh, pleasant words from the West, a lot of promises, uh, and uh, he was actually kind of tricked uh, by the West. Uh, so there were promises about NATO transformation or even NATO dissolution after the Warsaw Pact was uh, was dis- dis- dissolved. There were at least promises that uh, there were no, there will be no NATO enlargement, and that uh, of course there will be no weaponry uh, transferred to the eastern border uh, of, of, uh, of to the western border of Russia. So there were a lot of these things. Uh, I remember them when I was uh, working in foreign ministry. I already started in 1993, but now I see it in uh, the uh, transcripts of conversations uh, that were uh, held at that time. Uh, these are not, of course, treaties. Uh, there are no legal uh, obligations. But even Gorbachev himself, if you listen to his interviews, he regrets a lot of things that he did. And he uh, clearly says that he was strict. It, of course, uh, it overshadows uh, to a large extent uh, our relations right now because we were counting on a different world, uh, on uh, some kind of transformation of NATO into a certain maybe OEC plus, at least at least how we view it. Uh, we kind of made this sacrifice for the sake of, 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 of a better world, a better future. And what did we get in return? First of all, if you ask uh, common Americans uh, what was the result of the Cold War, they will say, well, of course, we defeated Soviet Union. We, we were the winners. We defeated communism. And when Russia asks uh, for something, some people say, how can you ask for something? You were defeated during the Cold War. That's not the, the that's not the way that we see the situation. We thought it was uh, kind of our common victory, and we all had to gain from it. Uh, but somehow the world uh, has become uh, American centric. It's uh, Pax Americana for sure. For several years it was like this, but nobody asked us whether we wanted this Pax Americana, whether we subscribed to it at these times uh, in the nineties or not. It was like take it or leave it. And then, step by step, we tried to, to we tried to be more assertive. We tried to uh, to present our interests uh, more clearly. The first crisis, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was that that in the Balkans in Yugoslavia. Uh, then, uh, of course, there was some uh, detente because of uh, because of 9/11, and uh, the whole world uh, changed. And we were very compassionate with the United States. Uh, we supported the the action in Afghanistan. Uh, inspired by by 9/11 but by uh, by the time of 2005 2006 i think it became absolutely clear that we are heading for a certain uh, certain clash and uh, the famous uh, putin's speech in the munich conference in 2007 i think it's kind of a turning point 
in our relations. There were a lot of warnings said by our president at this time, and it still becomes very actual, uh, remains very actual, this speech. You can read it and you will see like it was pronounced today. Uh, and this was kind of a profit speech because uh, it uh, enumerated um, a lot of points of tension, a lot of crisis that we see today. So if we want to mend our relations, uh, then we need to make a long, long step back to the time when uh, we were still speaking about some uh, indivisible security, about common organizations in, in Europe and in the world. We need to return to that time, because if we start to, to, to mend our relations, uh, uh, taking, uh, taking as a starting point uh, like uh, 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 reunification of Crimea with Russia, then we are on the wrong path, because this was only consequence of, of all this. And the trend now is to present it uh, quite uh, contrarily, that, uh, well, Russia is aggressive state, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia, 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 Russia. But we need to look a little bit back. That's impossible. That's very important. You know, the UN is is now 75 years old. And, and it seems, you know, throughout the Cold War, it did manage more or less to maintain certain rules of engagement for global politics, um, especially between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, where does the United Nations stand today? And Tom, you can start. Well, you know, that's a complicated question. Uh, if you think about the UN system and not simply the Security Council and the General Assembly, uh, then the affiliated organizations uh, play a, a largely positive role on a range of socioeconomic issues. Think about the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization, uh, the World Health Organization, and so forth. Uh, those play positive roles despite some. Uh, disputes that have arisen in the past uh, several weeks between the United States and some of these institutions. The uh, UN Security Council and the General Assembly are really about peace and security, uh, and that's the fundamental uh, sort of reason for the foundation of the, uh, the UN 75 years ago. Uh, and it worked quite well uh, during the Cold War, in large part because there was a, a workable balance between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, and each side uh, understood that uh, a conflict, a military conflict between the two of them would be catastrophic since it would almost uh, inevitably rise to the level of a nuclear confrontation. Uh, you know, as I said before, if you're going to have a, a stable world order, uh, you need a common sense of legitimacy uh, and you need a balance of power. Uh, and I think the problem that the UN faces today, particularly the UN Security Council, is that it doesn't necessarily meet those two criteria criteria any longer. Uh, there have been efforts over the past decade or, or more to think about how you reform the, the United Nations, particularly the UN Security Council. Uh, we've talked about adding additional members, that is, underscoring the diversity in the world, which is a way of recognizing the legitimacy of various points of view uh, as a foundation for the, the international system. Uh, but we've also thought about adding additional powers to the to the UN Security Council as permanent members, uh, perhaps without a veto. And I think that's the fundamental challenge that we we continue to face today: is that the uh, UN Security Council now, particularly the P5, don't really represent uh, the the current uh, balance of forces, the balance of power in the world today, uh, and that always creates a temptation by those countries that should be on the, uh, the Security Council as permanent members uh, to, to think uh, differently about, uh, about decisions that are taken there without their direct input. So uh, I think the, the, what the, the real challenge that the United Nations faces going forward is one of reform. How does it adapt itself to the realities of the, uh, of the current world situation? Uh, and beyond that, how does it do it in a way that it can think ahead five to 10 years or longer so that whatever reforms it puts in place now will have a chance of surviving for over the longer term. Yes, sure. Uh, this is a very interesting topic about UN 75. Uh, there are a lot of voices that are now saying that uh, United Nations is inefficient, uh, it's obsolete, and it needs reform. Everybody uh, acknowledges that UN needs reform. But UN uh, can't be ideal and Security Council can't be ideal because uh, the world is not ideal and they reflect, uh, of course, the, the current situation in the world, which is very controversial. 
And uh, if I use, uh, Tom, your terminology, I think that the United Nations, when it was created, it, re- it reflected um, multipolarity. It is, of course, in itself a tool for multilateralism, but it, re- it reflected multipolarity. And these P5 uh, powers, uh, they also represent polars of the world. And uh, I, I got your idea that you think that these, these poles are um, a bit wrong and you would uh, maybe reposition them. But the fact it, is that when we are speaking about reform of Security Council and uh, UN system, uh, but in particular Security Council, I think we are meaning a bit different things. Because, because what we have now in the Security Council, uh, we have uh, too much uh, Western domination in Security Council, and it doesn't reflect the moods in the world. Uh, and uh, we, were, we had several situations when it was quite clear uh, that uh, the Security Council composition right now doesn't reflect uh, the interests of the developing world of Africa, of Asia. So if we speak about enlargement of Security Council, in our view, it's not adding there uh, Japan or Germany or, I don't know, Canada, uh, because uh, they do not represent very populous uh, countries on the, of the world. It's rather about India, it's rather about Brazil, it's rather about some African countries. And uh, we, we think that that's the way to produce the reform. So if the reform is, uh, is tackled in the way I describe, I don't think that the United States will be, will be comfortable with this and uh, will, will support this kind of reform because in, in, in the understanding of our American colleagues, it's increasing uh, the proportion of, of Western states. And this, that's not what we should aim at. Uh, so I think that uh, it's difficult to say what is the current balance of power. Because uh, in America, you have uh, one picture that America dominates the world and there are certain countries that uh, American allies that should that should be given uh, more say. Uh, in my country or in China or in developing world, we also have uh, different perceptions of the world, how it might look like. But the world is not limited to the United Nations. You mentioned economic, uh, economic instruments, but uh, we think that, for example, G20 might be might be more better placed to tackle economic agenda than uh, sometimes even the United Nations uh, and uh, definitely than than G7. So there can be different uh, views on this issue, but uh, I think United Nations now is uh, is reflecting the world as it is. It has uh, enough of legit- legitimacy. Security Council uh, has a lot of uh, powers, a lot of instruments. The problem is that whether you acknowledge uh, it or not acknowledge, we have the uh, impression that United States uh, acknowledges uh, the, the tools of the Security Council when it's profitable to the United States. When it's not, then the United States uh, tries not to, to not not to notice what Security Council is doing or tries to say, well, of course, it's Russia and China, they are dominating and using this veto power. That's why you can't expect anything from Security Council. Tom, I want to give you a chance to respond if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's a complicated uh, issue here. Uh, you know, the United States certainly uh, thinks of the, of the United Nation as, a, as an important international institution. You know, all American administrations since the the foundation of the United Nations have played a fairly active role in trying to set the agenda and to work through the United Nations to deal with various problems of uh, of peace and security. And we see it largely as an institution for the promotion of peace and security uh, around the globe. Uh, You know, I think the problem from the standpoint of the United States uh, is really how we understand the fundamental principles uh, that undergird the organization and how those should be reflected in the work of the council. That's one. Uh, and two, I think it's true that uh, all the uh, permanent members of the Security Council uh, with the with the right of veto have used that veto uh, whenever they believe that a, a decision by the council or by majority rule would work to its dis- disadvantage uh, in its defense of its national interest. Um, so, uh, you know, I feel quite confident if the issue of Crimea had been put put before the, uh, the UN Security Council, that you would have had a, a large vote uh, against what Russia did in Crimea. Uh, Russia exercised it, would exercise its veto. The issue was never really discussed. Um, but I, is that a case of 
of the of Russia respecting legitimacy of the of the UN Security Council uh, are using its position there to prevent a a decision from being made that may work to his disadvantage. I think the United States treats the UN Security Council in much the same way, and we're always prepared to exercise a veto when we think that uh, the majority of the council uh, would vote in a way that's unfavorable to American national interests. Uh, so I mean, the question going forward really is how do we uh, create an environment in which these various uh, different views uh, can be aired uh, and we can come to some sort of reasonable understanding of how to how to go forward. I think the main uh, challenge for all of us, uh, and the UN plays a role in this, is restraining the competition between Russia, the United States, the uh, United States and China, um, competition among other major powers, uh, to make sure that uh, the competition doesn't spin out of control into direct military confrontation, which I think carries too great a risk of nuclear catastrophe and something we all have an interest in preserving. So uh, we'll continue to work with the UN Security Council despite all its flaws, uh, and we'll continue to accuse each other of, of undermining the spirit of the, uh, of the United Nations and the UN Security Council. But I think that is the reality in which we live. Fyodor, do you want to jump in? Yes, if, if possible. Uh, it's very interesting discussion, but uh, let me uh, make it a little bit more provocative. When I hear about uh, necessity to adapt United Nations to, uh, <clears throat> to the changed reality, of course, my uh, first question would be uh, great, but what uh, criteria for this adaptation might, uh, might be, how they can look like? Because, uh, uh, of course, politically correct to say that there are countries like India, like uh, uh, big African countries <clears throat> or Latin America or so, you name it, uh, which are not represented uh, and this is uh, unfair. But at the same time, <clears throat> uh, the current composition of the uh, P5 was created in, in a usual way, in a normal historical way through the big war. You may like it or dislike, but that was a very clear criteria. Those who won this war and those who were considered to uh, have won, uh, won this war, they, they uh, got privileges and <clears throat> those privileges remain. Uh, if we try to agree on other uh, criteria, other preconditions to join, uh, we will never find a common common solution because there are none. There are no uh, uh, any objective uh, uh, parameters which can be used to uh, to legitimize the, uh, certain countries to join, certain countries not to join. So my uh, <clears throat> uh, suggestion to esteemed colleagues, especially to those who work in in the United Nations, as Mitri, would be: don't touch it. Don't touch the the the, the current composition. Otherwise, you will, uh, or all of us uh, will, uh, just destroy what we have, not, not to create uh, something new. And the second point, which uh, I think uh, was partially uh, mentioned in Vladimir Putin's article uh, about Second World War, uh, in the final um, section, uh, he writes about uh, UN. And he touched upon the extremely important issue, which is, again, politically not entirely correct, but it's, it's important to understand. United Nations, in fact, is not a set up of agencies uh, dealing with different issues. Fine, and some of those are very efficient, some less. But United Nations uh, is, uh, th this organization is about veto power and about uh, how to prevent big war between great powers. That's it. That's basically the only mission which UN had from the beginning. And fortunately, thanks God, it's still there that all P5 uh, countries still respect this, this rule that if somebody is against and uh, uh, vetoes uh, the, the, the decision, other countries respect it. 
And I think it's unique in, in mankind's history. And that should be preserved. All the rest is, with all, all big respect, is, so to say, uh, not the most, that, that important. But, you know, if, Fyodor, if I may, if, if there is a, a, a recognition on, on many sides that there is a desire, a need to reform the United Nations, um, don't you think if there isn't a move to reform, it will lose that legitimacy of the great powers respecting the, the veto? Uh, yes, that this is a problem that we see uh, more and more frequently. That the General Assembly, uh, as a big gathering, is much less um, uh, satisfied with what um, uh, P5 and Security Council do. But at the same time, again, back to my to my point: how you can formulate criteria and which uh, you will reform this. Especially in the current environment, when we even uh, basic notions are understood differently between different countries. Can I jump in here, Sean? I mean, I think Fyodor has raised a, a very good point of what the criteria are. Again, if you look back at the foundation of the, of the UN, uh, the P5 were put in place because they were the victors um, in the Second World War. Uh, they were the five major powers at that point. Uh, but the world today uh, is, is different. Uh, you know, the, the P5 may still be major powers in many, many respects. Uh, but if you look out over the next five or 10 years, it's also clear that there are other powers that are emerging uh, that will consider themselves great powers. India has already been mentioned. Uh, if you uh, understand that the, the components of power are changing uh, radically in the current period, in part because technological advance and so forth. Uh, there are a number of countries with significant technological powers uh, that will be uh, major players on the global stage uh, in the world going forward. Places like Japan uh, and Germany, there may be a few others as well. Uh, and the point that I'm making is that the UN will not be able to survive as a uh, as an institution where uh, the, the rights and responsibilities of great powers are recognized unless some of these emerging great powers that are not included among the P5, uh, in fact, begin to play a larger role in the issues of uh, security and, and peace going forward. So that's, I think, is the real challenge going forward. Now, what makes this difficult is it's hard to talk about what the, re what the criteria should be for the inclusion as a permanent member uh, on the Security Council, because it gets down to questions of power, the ability to affect uh, the substance and, and direction of global affairs. Uh, and people are very uncomfortable about talking about power when we're talking about the uh, referate, uh, reform of the UN Security Council. They rather talk about justice, equality, and so forth. So I've already mentioned that. We need to add more countries to underscore the diversity in the world. That's a major element of legitimacy. But we also need to talk, frankly and openly, about the question of power and what are, in fact, the major powers that have the most direct impact on the issues of peace and security. Those are the countries that need to sit in the UN Security Council permanently. And those include more countries than simply the P5 is the point that I would make. Can I, can, can, yeah. Can I jump in on this issue because it's it's really what what concerns me and what is what is affiliated with my work. Uh, this is really a very complex issue, the reform of Security Council. But again, I want to to, to say that uh, we view the task of this reform and the outcome a bit differently with our Western colleagues. Uh, so, Security Council should really uh, reflect uh, the the balance of power, and uh, it should be democratic. If we if we say democratic, it means that uh, the the biggest proportion of population of the Earth should be reflected. So that's why it's quite clear for me that that India should be given this right, and Brazil. Uh, it's on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, there was when when United Nations was created in 1975, there was no no such a notion as as a block discipline. What we have now, we have uh, we have uh, NATO, we have U European Union. If you speak, if you if we take you know, uh, Security Council, uh, almost one third of its members are members of the EU. Now, United Kingdom is out, but still, it's very very closely affiliated. Or let's say NATO. 
So if we add, for example, Germany uh, to this equation, what, what would we gain? Uh, Germany is a member of the EU. Germany uh, is participating in common foreign and security policy of the European Union. So what's the point of adding, for example, an EU member on the list when the position of the EU is quite clear on most of the issues and when uh, EU de facto has veto power with France? What's the point of adding Japan, for example, as a, as a member of the Security Council when Japan is part of, of, of Western camp and its position is quite well represented by the United States and by the others? When we, Russia, are uh, acting in the Security Council, we are not only acting uh, because uh, that's our national interest and we should act like this. We also take into consideration the position of different countries, different regions, especially Africans and Asians. We are asking them. Uh, we are trying to monitor what's their position. So very often we take a decision not because this is only Russian interest to act like this, but we try to reflect the position of the others. Uh, and that, that's how it works. And I want just to, uh, to show to you ah, one more point. Uh, the Security Council, after the reform, it should be manageable. So it's not only adding members that matters, because we can add uh, mathematically, arithmetic, arithmetically, uh, 20, 20, make it 25, 30, 35, 40, 40, but will it work? I don't think it will work. Sometimes it's, it's a problem for us, even uh, in Security Council, uh, Council's composition of 15 members to, to come to a consensus and that, this, that the uh, statements are quite lengthy and the meetings are also extended in time. Uh, we think that the, the optimal, the maximum, what we need to aim at is uh, low 20s, so 21, 22, maximum 23 members. Uh, that's how it will still remain manageable. And uh, the last point I wanted to make uh, on how the Security Council reflects the reality and why it should, uh, it, it may be a bit disappointing for our Western colleagues. Uh, one situation comes to my mind, it was beginning of last year when there was a crisis around Venezuela, when when Guaido proclaimed himself as an interim president and the United States called for the meeting of Security Council. And there was a very, very intensive attack and uh, int intensive brainwashing before it uh, to adopt some decision and to have a very anti-Maduro discussion. But the Dominican Republic, which was president uh, at this time of the Security Council in January last year, they took a very wise decision. They said, okay, it concerns the region, so let's invite everybody from the region, everybody who wants to speak. And if you analyze the speeches of the Security Council members, uh, they were uh, overwhelming, overwhelmingly uh, in favor of Guaido. But if you took overall picture of how countries spoke, uh, the score was in favor of Maduro. And it was quite clear that the Security Council, in its composition, tackling the Venezuelan do dossier, uh, didn't reflect not only the position of the world, but the position of the region itself. So it, I, I think it was quite of quite of a alarm call for the United States uh, at this time. Uh, maybe I'm mistaken, but that's my analysis. Um, I, I know. Uh, uh... Dimitri only has a few minutes left, so I want to get uh, a couple of more issues in. The first one being, you know, Vladimir Putin uh, earlier this year proposed holding a summit of the Permanent Five of the UN Security Council. Um, why did he propose such a meeting, and 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 what's the what's the logic behind it? Uh, I think it's uh, it's quite uh, it's quite a good proposal because uh, there are really a lot of things to mend in the world right now, and uh, sometimes it's not clear how to mend them, uh, how to how to come to this basic understanding, to the principles of uh, of how the international system uh, should work right now. So that's why the P five, uh, who bears special responsibility for for the world, for for the security. Uh, they they should come together and uh, make a certain brainstorming of uh, what can we do, how can we reinforce Security Council, how can we uh, how can we make security uh, in the world better, how can we improve uh, international relations, maybe uh, elaborate certain approaches on uh, tackling uh, world crisis. Uh, so there are a lot of things to discuss, and we we didn't have this discussion. For a very very long time, I, I may be mistaken, but I think that uh, it was never done uh, with uh, with independent and uh, new Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this is a good change, not to reset international relations, but to to give them a new impetus and maybe a new a new reasoning. Uh, 
so we are looking forward for the, to this, and uh, we just think that uh, there should be uh, a lot of issues to discuss. It shouldn't be limited to discussion of one or two issues, uh, very narrow one. It, it should be a very big, uh, open, open-minded and open-ended discussion. And uh, we are now working on the agenda. Uh, to, as soon as we agree on the agenda, I think it would be uh, high time to speak about the time and the venue, but uh, we're still quite far from this. And Tom, how has this proposal been taken in on the American side? I think with a grain of salt. I mean, they're not opposed to having a discussion as long as there's a, a workable agenda and some clear idea of what issues are going to be discussed uh, in what order and how long uh, the, the session will last. Uh, but if I could comment further, I, the question that arises is why these five powers? Um, yes, they're permanent members of the Security Council. They're permanent members of the Security Council based on a, a, a series of events that occurred 75 years ago. Uh, you know, we've just been talking about uh, the extent to which the Security Council represents the diversity in the world today, whether it reflects the genuine balance of power. Uh, again, to go back to my point, uh, if if this is really uh, a, a meeting of the major global powers, the, the ones that have the greatest influence over the issues of peace and security in the global environment, and then these five countries ought to be part of that discussion, but they shouldn't be the only countries that are part of the discussion. India clearly is a, a country that ought to be included. So there ought to be at least six uh, countries. You want to add Brazil uh, and a few others, that's fine as well. Uh, but I don't see where... Uh, the P5, uh, if they get together in a summit, are going to be able to come to uh, a consensus or come to views uh, that will then necessarily be accepted by other uh, significant players in the global environment. So uh, I'm not opposed to it. Uh, it's always worthwhile to have discussions, uh, but I don't think it's going to have the impact uh, that perhaps President Putin hopes it would. Mm-hmm. Um, another issue, of course, is is... The, the world we're living in right now, and that is uh, the coronavirus pandemic, which has basically put global politics more or less in suspended animation. How do each of you view um, how the, the pandemic will impact international relations moving forward? Uh, Dimitri? Well, uh, it's quite clear that the impact will be great, not only at the level of, uh, of, of politics, but at the level of uh, people-to-people relations. Uh, the crisis uh, showed our vulnerability and our dependence on uh, on a lot of things that we didn't even notice. So, of course, we need to process uh, this. Uh, I don't. I, I don't think that we need to. Uh, we need to support some catastrophic uh, scenarios uh, that uh, this uh, pandemic uh, would uh, would lead uh, to certain crises uh, directly or in international relations. It depends on how, how you tackle and how you view it. Um, uh, apart from uh, uh, medical p- part of it, uh, I mean uh, lack of uh, common response to the pandemic, uh, lack of precautionary measures, uh, so we all could have acted more efficiently and in a more coordinated way. Uh, that's quite clear. There is also another side of it, and it's now gaining more and more uh, momentum it's uh, that it's it's finger pointing so uh united states again i'm sorry to mention all the time united states but it's really uh, uh, big one of the biggest players in the world united states is using now this situation to say that china is to blame yes chinese have launched this virus uh, they say first they they claimed that it was produced in a military laboratory uh, now there are a lot of people here, a lot of uh, people whom I really consider to be reasonable, uh, who are now writing letters to me and saying that Russia should support international movement to make China responsible for this and to ask for compensation because this was the Chinese who launched uh, this, this virus. Uh, for me, this is absolutely absurd and a lot of people agree. But still, uh, here in the United States, we see that it has already become part of political agenda and there is little hope that the situation will change uh, for the better before the elections. Uh, on the contrary, it may change for the worse. So this is a direct consequence, that it is scapegoating and trying to make one country, China, to blame. And also, 
there is also a kind of a beauty contest that uh, who has dealt better with coronavirus. Everybody, everybody was uh, were not uh, uh, very efficient. Uh, so we all had our shortcomings because nobody expected this. Nobody had uh, had uh, recipes uh, what to do. But now the countries are trying to say yes, we did we did well, we did better than the others. Our numbers are lower. Uh, our reaction was better, and now there is also a race for the vaccine. So, who will create the vaccine is kind of national national pride, and uh, people will say yes, we created the vaccine because this is uh, how our our uh, medicine uh, medical system works. It is the most advanced in the world, and that's why we are the most advanced country in the world. It's quite clear to see here in the United States that these are the trends and these are the moods of the people, of the politicians. They they are now processing this COVID crisis uh, through these optics. And this is very, very dangerous optics. Uh, so the, they already made certain moves to withdraw from World Health Organization and the majority of the world, the overwhelming majority of the world, considers that it is uh, the uh, quite the opposite of what uh, we should do right now. We need to unite and we need to understand how to answer such challenges because this is not the last challenge we were not we're no, you can't say that we avoid we will avoid such situations in the future the virus can be different it can be more deadly and we still don't have collective response that's how we should now think and work to create this collective response to find out the mechanism and we're doing quite the opposite so the united states clearly has started this scapegoating and uh, finger pointing game which which doesn't help uh, very much to to resolve the situation. That's the direct consequences. Everything else is now kind of theoretical, but this is practical. This is already what what we feel right now, and this is very dangerous. Yeah, just a couple of points here. I mean, first, I would disagree with the premise that it's put global diplomacy into animated suspension at this point. I mean, the world has continued uh, despite the pandemic. Uh, uh, around the globe and the various challenges that has posed to countries. Um, so we still have conflicts in Libya, Ukraine, Afghanistan. You go through the list. None of that has uh, subsided because of the of the coronavirus. Uh, the second point I would make is that what the pandemic has underscored is really the primacy of the nation state or the sovereign state in international affairs. Uh, what has been seen all around the world is that countries... Uh, did not move towards a collective response to this uh, pandemic. Rather, they they did what they could to save themselves initially, closing down borders, uh, keeping supplies for themselves. You even saw this in the European Union, uh, where countries refused to provide uh, supplies, necessary supplies to Italy at the beginning of the pandemic, in part because they were concerned about what the consequences would be for their own countries later on. We certainly saw that in Russia. We saw that in China. Uh, and so, uh, you know, all the, the talk about uh, the international community, the importance of collective response has been put under greater challenge by the pandemic. Uh, and we still don't see going forward this desire to, to really work together to try to solve these problems. Now, where I would disagree with Dimitri uh, is on, on sort of the finger pointing, uh, you know, certainly the United States has done some of that, but we're not the only country that has done that. Uh, the Chinese have accused us of the United States of actually being behind the uh, the development invention of this crisis, uh, this crisis of this virus and its unleashing on the world. I think what is clear is that if we're serious about an international response and collective response to these types of issues, that we need to have greater understanding of how it actually developed. And that does mean that there needs to be a thorough investigation uh, of what happened in China in the initial phase, uh, at what time the Chinese leadership was aware of the pandemic, at what point uh, they made it publicly uh, publicly acknowledged it or made the authorities at the World Health Organization of this, uh, what we could have done to contain the, the virus at an earlier stage and so on uh, and so forth. Uh, so... Uh, you know, that's not finger pointing to say that we need a thorough investigation of the uh, of the origins and the spread of this virus. Uh, if we're going to be able to develop a collective response, then we need to have a greater understanding of that. And China clearly is at the center of this question uh, and has resisted the, the global effort 
uh, to have a thorough investigation. That is going to be a problem going forward. Uh, and it would be, I think, helpful uh, from our standpoint if, the, uh, if Russia would also recognize that and call for a fair and objective investigation of the origins and spread of the, spread of the pandemic. Uh, you know, I, I agree that uh, this pandemic didn't change uh, the essence of international politics and uh, it was a <clears throat> period of significant confusion uh, due to unique uh, situation when uh, international communication effectively stopped for a while. But uh, now, as uh, diplomacy and uh, political actions are back on track, we see that not much changed, actually, uh, in terms of agenda. But what I wanted to say uh, as a conclusion to our discussion, <clears throat> and partially as a response to the question about pandemic, uh, I think uh, despite all problems we mentioned, and despite all uh, criticism <clears throat> towards the United Nations about the shortcomings of this organization. It proved uh, to be very res resistant and resilient to uh, different uh, negative uh, <clears throat> circumstances. Uh, I would say that uh, the worst period for the United Nations was uh, in uh, uh, say 90s and early 2000s, when the balance of powers uh, did not exist, uh, Tom referred several times to balance, and uh, it was a period when uh, United States and uh, Western community at large <coughs> believed that uh, uh, this domination not only uh, political, but also, I would say, moral domination of the West in the world will persist and continue. <clears throat> and uh, all of us remember then times discussions first about how to reform and transform United Nations, and then uh, how to bypass. So the Bush administration um, at least uh, once decided not to go to the United Nations and do things uh, uh, independently. And that failed, both attempts to uh, unilaterally reform and attempts to unilaterally act. So even those who did it, they came to conclusion that United Nations, uh, UN was very instrumental and useful. And now, despite all troubles and all those uh, skirmishes there and uh, uh, Dmitry can tell a lot about, uh, so to say, infighting in the United Nations, but it works. It works because uh, it still uh, is an arena where most important political decisions are being discussed and most important political actions are being prevented from, uh, from um, being done because uh, some of uh, members, important members, are, uh, are against that. And again, I think this is the most important function of the United Nations. And if that will continue in the future, that means that the United Nations will survive, uh, be it pandemic, be it uh, uh, economic crisis or whatever. Any final words, Tom? No, I mean, I think this has been a, a very good discussion. Uh, obviously, there are real challenges going forward. The world is changing very, very rapidly. Uh, and it will behoove both the United States and Russia to take a, uh, a hard look at the way they've conducted themselves in global affairs up to this point uh, and how they respond to the, uh, to the current challenges and what responsibility each of the countries has for the preservation of peace and security going forward. Uh, you know, as we said at the beginning, I think it's imperative that the United States and Russia find a way to talk together, uh, communicate once again. Um, that, I think, is of the greatest importance right now. Uh, and we also need to remember our, our, our common responsibility, given that we are and remain the two greatest nuclear powers to prevent those nuclear weapons from ever being used uh, in a conflict. And therefore, we need to, to find a way to compete more safely in the global environment, to strain the competition, 
and also find ways to cooperate so that we can deal with the emerging global challenges, pandemic diseases being among uh, the first of them. You've been listening to Geopolitics on the Move. Geopolitics on the Move is produced by Russia and Global Affairs, the Graduate Initiative in Russian Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies, and the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. The Carnegie Corporation of New York provided funding. The theme music is focused by A.A. Alto. Until next time, bye. Bye.